message today, I do want us to take just a moment and I want us uh, to remember in prayer a church in Buffalo. You remember last week I asked you to pray for the city of Buffalo and uh, in the aftermath of the shootings that happened in the grocery store there. Well, I read a news article and turns out that there was one church particularly impacted. It's called North Buffalo Community Church. It's a Southern Baptist church in Buffalo and uh, they had several members impacted by that shooting, and then I noticed their pastor's name was William Smith, which is my name. And, and I felt the Spirit of God just sort of nudge me and say, your church needs to bless them. You share the same name, pastors share the same name, they're going through a tough time. So because you're a generous people, we were able to send them $1,000 and just say, please use this so that the people in your community can be blessed as they grieve. I'd like to take us just a, one more moment and, and ask God to bless that church as they minister in that heartbreak. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we continue to pray for the people in Buffalo and for families that are grieving and they're still going through that process and families that are, are praying for loved ones who are injured. I pray for this church, North Buffalo Community Church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't know them personally, but we are kin, we are in your family. And I pray, God, that you would support them and encourage them, especially their pastor, Pastor Smith. I pray, God, that you would give him wisdom and strength. There's so many people around him right now that need an encouraging touch. They need the hope of Jesus. Help him, God, to communicate that clearly. Encourage him, strengthen him. Bless that church and their ministry to this hurting place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, noted Christian writer, recently finished his memoir, and it's entitled, Where the Light Fell. And in that memoir, he opens with the story of the death of his father. His father had, at a very um, early age, early adulthood, sensed a call to ministry and his father uh, met his mother and they married. They both sensed this call to serve God full time and it, specifically to serve God as missionaries in Africa. Well, that's, that's quite a calling from God, but even more so in the late 40s and 50s when communication was not what it is today, when you were not able to travel as easily as we are today. So they had this tremendous sense of call and then his father contracted polio. Now, you may remember polio, those of you uh, who maybe lived through the late 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the debilitating, crippling disease, and one out of every 75 people who contracted polio lost their ability to breathe on their own. It would paralyze and constrict the muscles, and so that's what happened with Philip Yancey's dad. He was placed in what is known as an iron lung, a machine that did the breathing for him. Now, remember, these are people called to be missionaries. And Philip was a baby. He doesn't really remember anything about this. But it, he, he found out later that his parents had enlisted thousands of people to pray for them. In fact, his mother said that, that they had enlisted 5,000 people from California to Georgia to pray for healing. And then they began to get a sense that God wanted them to check out of the hospital for Philip's dad to leave the iron lung. And, and Philip's dad, when asked, why do you want to do this, actually said, uh, I believe this is what the Lord wants me to do. 
And, and when his mom was asked, and this was all written up in the Atlanta Constitution, was asked about this, she said, lots of people who believe in faith healing are praying for him. We believe in doctors, but we believe God will answer our prayers and he will get well. And so against medical advice, Philip's dad was checked out of Grady Hospital in Atlanta and was placed in an alternative medicine facility to receive different kinds of treatment, holistic treatment, where he would be covered in prayer and 5,000 people are praying for his healing. Nine days after Philip's dad checks out of Grady Hospital, he dies. Now, Philip did not know this part of his dad's story, that they had checked him out against medical advice. He didn't find this out until he went to college at Columbia International University over in Columbia. And you can imagine when he found this out, he had to ask, did they mishear God? I mean, did somehow they think that, hey, if we get 5,000 people, that will be enough that God will have to listen to us. And I think we would ask the same question, wouldn't we? I mean, even though these people are, are, are called to be missionaries and obviously must have an incredible relationship with God, to, to check out against medical advice and, and to risk death, did they really hear from God? Did they ever pray, thy will be done? Well, today we're continuing our series called The Unlikely, our exploration of the book of Judges, how God uses unlikely people. We're going to meet a scoundrel, a man named Jephthah. And he's going to have to wrestle with this. You know, what, what does he think God really asked him to do versus what does God really ask him to do? Now, you, you've heard enough of the stories out of Judges by now to pick up the pattern. The pattern is that the people of God, Israel, turns away from God. They worship false gods. God sends an impressor, in this case, the nation of Ammon. And Ammon invades, conquers large parts of the Israelite territory. And then God is going to hear the cries of the people when they cry out for relief from the oppressors. And God will send a deliverer. And we've seen this pattern. God sent a betrayer, Jehu. God one time even sent a woman, Deborah. God then sends a coward, Gideon. And these cycles happen about every 60, 80, 100 years. And, and this is where we pick up the story in Judges chapter 10. If you have a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 10. We're gonna be looking at verses 10 and 11. Keep your Bibles open because we're gonna be moving through different parts of, of this passage. So here's where everything starts with the elders of Gilead. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead on attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Now, Gilead is the region uh, of land east of the Jordan River. Lots of Israelites live there. And so these elders gather and they say, we need some help. We need a commander to come and take charge. And if he does, he'll be the leader of all the people east of Jordan. I want you to notice what they do not do. They do not pray. They do not ask God for help. They do not ask God, what does he think? 
Every other time in the book of Judges so far, God has sent a leader. This time, they are not willing to wait, so they put out a want ad. Wanted. Military leader, wages. We'll make you in charge of the whole area. Military experience preferred, apply in Mizbah to the elders of Gilead. Can I just pause here and ask you, do you ever think we get in such a rush for a leader that we forget to pray? Well, now we're, going, now we're going to meet Jephthah. And we meet him in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get an inheritance from in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. And so Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So what do we know about Jephthah? Okay, first of all, he's a mighty warrior. It's the same term applied to Gideon that we talked about last week. Skilled in battle. Second thing we know is he's illegitimate. His father is named Gilead, and this is where it gets confusing, right? He has a father named Gilead, and he lives in a country called Gilead. Okay, so keep that straight. There's a land called Gilead and a dad called Gilead. And Jephthah lives in one, is the son of another, but his mother is a well, a lady of the evening, shall we say. And so naturally, when he grows up, his brothers are scared to death. They will have to split the inheritance of their father with this illegitimate son. Have you ever seen families argue over an inheritance? Oh, yeah. So Jephthah is driven out by his half-brothers, and he joins up with this group of people other outcasts like him, he has to join up with them, and we're told they are scoundrels. And they have learned how to fight, how to make a living the same way the Ammonites do. They raid villages, steal from people. In other words, they are Robin Hood without a moral compass. They do not steal from the rich and give to the poor. They steal from the rich and keep it. When you read this, for the first time. You think Gilead is a godly man? You think Gilead, anybody that ever looks at Gilead and say, there goes somebody who actually follows God. He's just like somebody we would imagine the son of God to be. I don't think that's anybody's impression of Gilead at all. I mean, Jephthah at all. Well, no one answers the one ad. And so the elders start recruiting and they go to Jephthah. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, now, there's something real subtle going on. If you read this real fast, you won't get it. The original offer in the one ad was, come lead us and we'll make you the head over all of uh, Gilead, over all this region. But they changed the offer to Jephthah, probably because he's an outcast, he's a scoundrel, and he's illegitimate. And how do they change it to? Just be our commander. This is a temporary gig. We just want you to lead us into battle, see if you can win, and then you can go back to whatever you're doing. 
They are bargaining with Jephthah. Now keep that word in mind. It's real important in the story. So Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Jephthah says, sure, sure, come to me now. You can't find anybody else to take the job. Remember, I'm the outcast. I'm the illegitimate guy that nobody wanted around. But I'm not going to take your lesser offer. Have you ever noticed how people who are hurt early in life often see life as a series of transactions and they want to come out on top? Well, the elders of Gilead have no other choice. And so we're told the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. In other words, they say, okay, we'll go back to the original offer. You'll be the head because they've got nowhere else to turn. But Jephthah doesn't trust them. He's not a trusting soul. After all, if you had his past, would you be a trusting soul? So look at what he says. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Will you really keep your word? And the elders have upped their offer and Jephthah doesn't trust them. And so the elders come back and they say, the Lord is our witness. Now, now we hear that, okay, and we hear people all the time now say, as God is my witness. Okay, but this is more serious. Back then to say, the Lord is our witness is to make an oath. It is to take a vow. And that's real important. We're going to see this again in the story. And so the elders reply, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. And they make it public. In other words, Jephthah is trying to do everything he can to lock them into this deal. He is a shrewd bargainer. Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. He got both roles and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So what's the first thing we learn from this story? Ever notice how people make plans and then ask God to bless them? We never do that, do we? The elders have not prayed. The elders have not sought God. The elders have not said, we will wait on God. Instead, the elders are pushing the issue and they have linked up with a guy who's kind of a scoundrel and he's negotiating, he's driving a hard bargain with them and God's not even in the equation. Here's what we learn from this first part of the story. Involve God first. Before you make your plans, ask God what he has in mind. Before you make a decision about, hey, this is what I want to do, or this is what seems smart, or what, this is what seems wise, actually ask God, what do you want me to do? Now, graduates, if I can offer you any counsel today, it is pray before you plan. Now, here's the scary thing. I know some of you have already planned, and now you're hearing this message and go, I should have prayed. It's never too late. Okay, it's never too late. So I, can I just challenge you a little bit? And, and if you're a junior, sophomore over here, pay attention. Before you decide where to go to college, pray about it. And if you've already decided where to go, 
How about ask God what he thinks? It is better to change your mind even at this late date than to go somewhere God does not want you to go. I know that scares some of you parents because you're gonna lose your deposits. Better to lose your deposits than have your child go somewhere that God doesn't want them to go, right? Right? I don't know how big a deposit you guys paid, but I think a little bit more of right would be coming, right? And, and can I just tell you one other thing, okay? Because some of you are in the dating world, right? And some of you, oh, you're already kind of just really tough time because you're going to have to leave your high school boyfriend, girlfriend behind, and you just don't know what you're going to do without them. Oh, I feel for you. But before, before, before you kind of get all the way there, ask God, is this the right person for me? Ask God, is this, now here's where the graciousness of God comes into me, that God (laughs) guides us to the right people even when we don't pray. But how much wiser will we be if we actually pray about God? Is this the right person for me? Should I be dating this person? And some of you don't want to pray that prayer because you're afraid of what God might say. Okay, involve God first. Now, the middle of chapter 11 is this long bargaining session, negotiating session between Jephthah and the king of Amnon. They don't agree on history. They don't agree on what needs to be done. Jephthah basically is saying, you guys need to give up and surrender because you're wrong. It doesn't work. But I want you to see again this pattern. Jephthah is a bargainer. And now for the first time after this negotiation fails, God enters the picture. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. I want you to see how gracious God is. And this is important. Nobody has prayed to God so far. Nobody has sought God's guidance. And yet God now says, okay, I'm going to use Jephthah. The Spirit of God comes upon him. It is a reminder, God can use unlikely people he did not even choose for his will. And we see this all through the Bible. God uses Nebuchadnezzar both to teach his people a lesson. God uses Cyrus, king of Persia, to rebuild his temple. God even uses Caesar Augustus to order a tax so that his son can be born in Bethlehem. That's the kind of God we serve, a gracious God who will even use people that he didn't choose. Now, let me be real specific about this. About every four to eight years, half of you are going to be disappointed in who is elected president. Am I right? You're going to vote for somebody and they don't get elected. Doesn't matter which party you belong to, it's going to happen. Do you know that God can use people you didn't vote for to do his will? It's astounding, isn't it? That's why you should pray for our leaders no matter how you vote. And that's why you should be looking for signs that God is using them. So, be aware of God in your life. That God is moving, God is using. We're not even sure that Jephthah knew that the Spirit of God was on him. The text doesn't indicate, it just says the Spirit of God came. But how much better would Jephthah's life have been if he'd actually been aware, hey, God is saying something. And again, let me speak specifically to the graduates. You're about to launch out into the next chapter of your life. 
You're going to experience some new freedoms. You're going to experience some new opportunities. Remember to make time daily for God. And I don't just mean asking God. I don't even mean just praying or Bible study. I mean actually create some spiritual space where you are asking God, what is your will? What am I supposed to do? And be thankful to God for what he is doing. It reminds you he is at work. Make it a spiritual discipline to find three things every day that you can give God thanks for. And yes, that will include, God, thank you for letting me pass this test, right? Okay, I get that. Hey, God, thanks for, for letting me actually make new friend in this next era of my life. And God, thanks for showing me what I need to do to be preparing for the next chapter of life. So, I'm going to tell you my hunch about Jephthah. I think the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, but he really didn't know it, or if he knew it, he didn't trust it. And the reason I think this is found in verses 30 and 31. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Jephthah is saying, okay, God, I'm making this vow. It's very serious. Whatever comes out of my door of my house, I'm going to offer that as a burnt offering, which means it has to be killed, cut up, burned on an altar. Because we take promises to God so lightly, we, we don't really realize what he's saying. Anybody read Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? You remember the unbreakable vow? And what happens if you break an unbreakable vow? You die. This is the idea in those days. If you vow something to God and you don't keep your end of the bargain, God's going to kill you. Now, here's the interesting thing. God never actually says he'll do that. But that's the way people thought. And people in those days lived in houses where both they lived and their animals lived. Think barn dominium. They live half, animals live in half. So Jephthah is making this vow and he's probably thinking, okay, when I come back from battle, if I win, because if I don't win, I'm going to die. But if I survive and I come back in victory, then whatever walks out the door first. If it's a lamb, I'll sacrifice the lamb. If it is a cow, I'll sacrifice the cow. If it's a donkey, I'll sacrifice the donkey. If it is a chicken, I will sacrifice the chicken. I think he's hoping for the chicken. Why is Jephthah making this vow? He's a bargainer. Remember? That's what he's done. So far, his whole story, bargains with the elders, bargains with the king of Amnon. Now he's making a bargain with God. This is actually the only time Jephthah prays. It's actually the only time anybody prays in this whole story. The first time they ever address God. Does this sound like a great prayer of faith? Does this sound like a bribe? A bargain? We used to call these foxhole prayers. It was from when men were in the army in World War II, 
when shells would be landing around them and bullets would be flying by and, and they would make extravagant promises to God. God, if you just let me live and get me out of this, then I will serve you. I will be a preacher. I will be a priest. Foxhole prayer. We ever pray that way? God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll never drink again. You just get me out of this, and I promise, I promise, God, I, I, I will never cheat again. I will never look at porn again. I will never do any of that again. God, just get me out of this. Please, 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 please. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, God, if you will just hear, heal, heal, heal my daughter, heal my husband, heal my spouse, God, then I promise, I promise, I promise, I'll go to church every Sunday. I will tithe. I will even volunteer to work in vacation Bible school. God, just anything, right? You, you hear what we're doing? We're bargaining with God. We're trying to bribe God. Is, is this the way Jesus taught us to pray? No. How did he teach us to pray? Don't you remember? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the second great thing that I learned in this story, is don't bargain with God. Submit to God. Don't bargain. Now, it's okay. It's okay to tell God what you need. God, please heal somebody. That's okay to pray. God, please help me pass the test. That's okay to pray. God, please get me out of this mess. That's okay to pray. But don't try to bribe him. Don't try to offer him something and say, hey, God, I will give you this if you do this, because you know what it does? You know what it does? It leaves us in control. We think we still get to be in control. It is not thy will be done. So Jephthah leads the army into battle. They defeat the Ammonites. The Ammonites are driven out of the land of Israel and the Ammonite nation is rendered powerless. The army's destroyed. God once again has used an unlikely leader to do his will. And now tragedy strikes. Remember the vow? I'm sure Jephthah did. And when he went home, he remembered that vow, and he had to be looking to see what would come out of his house first. I, I, again, I think he's hoping for the chicken. But the first person out of the door of his house is not an animal. Verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Jephthah had not thought his vow through. He forgot there was a custom. If you return from war victorious, the women of the house would come out with timbrels, little finger symbols, and they would come out and they would be dancing a dance of celebration. Their warrior has come home. And so the first thing out of Jephthah's door is his only child, his daughter. And the Hebrew tells us, the Hebrew word here tells us she's probably 13, 14, 
15 years old, same age as these girls who just led us in worship. And all the joy of victory disappears for Jephthah. He tears his clothes, it's a sign of mourning. And doesn't it almost sound like he's blaming his daughter? Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me low. It's not my fault. You're the one responsible. Let me pause here. I need to say some things very clearly to you. Men often blame women for their own mistakes. Some of you have lived that. Some of you women. You grew up with abusive fathers who told you you deserve it. Maybe you're in an abusive marriage and your husband tells you You made me do this. I have heard men for decades now say things like, she was asking for it. I want to tell you all of that is wrong. Any thought like that is not a thought from God. Women, you're responsible for you. And when any man tries to put something on you, and blame you for their own actions, their own sins, their own decisions, you reject that message. It's not from God. And here's Jephthah, he says, I've made a bargain with God, and I can't break the vow I've I've locked in, because Jephthah has thought of his relationship with God as a bargain all the way through, and now he feels like he has to hold up his end of the bargain. Did God ask Jephthah to make this vow? No. Did God want Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter? No. Jephthah's about to make an offering to God that God never asked for. You ever give God something that God does not want? Among ministers, This happens a lot. Many of my peers, and I myself have done this sometimes. We sacrifice our marriages and our families, and we say, honey, I'm sorry, I know I need to be with you and the kids, but right now somebody in the church is unhappy and I have to go and help them be happy. Does God really ask you to do that? I think about this. It's not just exclusive to ministry. I hear a lot of guys, and and they will say stuff like, I have to work hard for my family, and I'm sure you do. But I think we really have to also pause and ask, am I working hard for my family, or am I working hard so I can gain status, or I can get more money, so I can have these luxuries in my life? You gotta be careful. Oh, and it's not just guys. I've known women who've absented themselves from their kids and their marriage because they're chasing something else. And you've got to ask, hey, is that really what God wants? Andy Stanley, who's the lead pastor at North Point, tells about when he was starting the church, when they were starting the church, and the church began to grow very rapidly, uh, Andy had three kids under the age of five at home. And so he went to his wife, Sandra, and he said to her, okay, what do I need to do to help you? 
And he was kind of expecting, well, can you do the laundry every week or something like that? And she said, I need you to be home every day at 4.30. Now, why would she ask for that? If you have ever stayed home with three children under the age of five, you understand why she wanted him home every day at 4.30. Am I right? Right. And so that was the bargain they struck. It was agreement. It seemed like that was healthy. That's what God would want. And so people would come to Andy and say, there's a group in our church and they're not happy and they can only meet with you Tuesday at 6 p.m. And Andy would say, I'm sorry. I made a promise to my wife and I have to be home at 4.30. I will meet with them before 4.30, but I can't meet after 4.30. Do you think, do you think, do you think that Andy maybe was more in accordance with what God's will was than if he tried to make everybody in the church happy? So here's the tragic end of the story. Jephthah's daughter makes a request to let her have two months to go off into the hills with her friends and lament that she will never be a mother, she will never be a wife. She'll never live out her purpose. And then she comes back in verse 39 after the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. And so let's be sure that we understand the Bible actually has compressed it for us and not told us the gory details, but this would have meant that when Jephthah's daughter came home that there was a day he took her probably to a high place and he took a knife and he stabbed her in the heart or maybe severed her jugular vein and she would have died in his presence. He would have killed his daughter and then he would have cut up her body and put it on an altar and built a fire and burned it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And don't you have some questions? Like my question is, why didn't Jephthah's daughter run away? Well, they, she lived in a patriarchal society. And, and so she was programmed, I have to do what my dad says to do, even if what my dad says to do is wrong. <laughs> Let's again just be clear, God never asks you to sacrifice your child. God never asks you then or now to do something like this that is so sinful. And then you've got to wonder, why didn't Jephthah ask God to release him? Why didn't Jephthah go to God and say, I screwed up, please let me out of this vow? There actually was a way out. In the book of Leviticus, written about 400 years before this, in Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6, so important, I'm going to read you this passage. We are told, if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even if they're unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. Can I stop right there? Does that describe Jephthah or not? Look at what he goes on and says. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. And as a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. For the price of a lamb or a goat, Jephthah's daughter could have lived. Why didn't he do that? Two possible explanations. First explanation, he'd never read Leviticus. Never. Never didn't know it was there. 
Remember, he's not exactly a godly man. Remember, he's always thought about his life with God as a bargain. So he's never taken time to actually learn what God said. Now, listen, if you're a teenager in this room today, this is a reason you should encourage your parents to read the Bible. Think about it. Second possibility, and this one's more terrifying. Jephthah did know about this passage in Leviticus. I mean, surely there would have been somebody with him who'd actually read Leviticus. Somebody surely would have said something to him along the way of like, you know, you don't have to do this. But it could be that that Jephthah is so proud, he will not admit he sinned. He'd rather kill his daughter than confess his sin. You say, how horrible. Well, I know people who won't confess their sin. And they don't care how much damage they do to their family. Sometimes it's called addiction. I I think the flaw at the bottom of all this, Jephthah still sees his relationship with God as a negotiation, as a bargain. He's a scoundrel. And here's the last thing to really pull from this passage, and I hope you get this. Your relationship with God is not a bargain to be struck. It's a relationship. It's a relationship of grace. So why do you think God put this story in the Bible? Just to make us all squirm? No, I I think there's something real important here. God makes a way out of every dumb decision you've ever made. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of forgiveness. And the time came when he knew lambs and goats wouldn't cut it, and so he offered his son as a living sacrifice. Imagine how hard that was for him. His son was the lamb. That was the atonement, the payment for your sin and my sin. And don't you remember Jesus, Jesus conveyed to us, if we will confess our sin, if we will follow him, if we'll actually acknowledge, I'm not very good at doing my life, Lord. Here are the mistakes I have made. And please, now I follow you. Forgive me, I'll follow you. All that sin is removed. And God says, you belong to me. We have a relationship, not a bargain. So if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I think think the primary thing you need to learn today is don't make your relationship with God a bargain. Make it a relationship of grace. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I really want to encourage you to take this step today to just admit I am a sinner and I have really messed up my life and I have done things I should not have done and God, please, Forgive me, and I want to follow Jesus. Let Jesus be the lamb offered for you. Don't bargain with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you, you have done in and through him for all of us, that he is our savior. Would you please help all of us who follow Jesus never to think about bargaining with you. And Father, would you please speak to everyone today, watching online, watching in one of the rooms at the campuses, would you help every one of us to understand how we need Jesus. If if anyone doesn't know him today, may they receive him as Savior and Lord. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.